Welcome to the Speech Uncensored podcast. This is your one-stop shop for everything related to the medical speech and language pathology world. If you're interested in learning more about this podcast and hearing the origin story, go on over to www.speechuncensored.com and find that and other information you might find useful. All right, so this is our first episode, and I'm really excited to have Jen Hurst having a conversation about the trach and vent population. Uh, Jen has been practicing for the past 13 years um, across pediatric and adult populations, and today we're going to be tapping into her personal experience working with this population in long-term acute care hospitals. What I love about this conversation with Jen is that she doesn't hold back. She tells it like it is and offers lots of tips for collaborating and succeeding with this population. All right, so without further ado, we'll just jump right in and let Jen take it away. All right, welcome, Jen. I'm so glad you could join us. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited. So our topic is going to be trach and vent population. Sounds good. I love that population. Yeah? Well, tell me why. So tell me a little bit about how you got into this um, by accident, really. So I did my CFY in a school district, and I hated every second of it. I mean, there was not one thing that I enjoyed about working in the schools. So I knew that I wanted out, and so I started contacting all of my clinical supervisors. And one of them had just gotten um, a PRN job at an LTAC. It was a full... And an LTAC is? A long-term acute care hospital, okay. which is not a long-term care facility, so these are patients who, most recently, the um, requirements to get into an LTAC is you have to have had uh, inpatient, or I'm sorry, uh, you had to have had uh, an acute, what am I thinking? Not an acute, you, intensive care. You had to be in the ICU for three days prior to coming in okay. to the hospital. So these are patients who are very sick. Um now, could they have gone from ICU to a lower level of care in the hospital and then to an LTAC, or do they go straight from ICU to LTAC? Usually just straight from ICU is how I remember it. Um, there might be some caveat, like within a certain time frame, they had to have been in the ICU for three days, but um, you're no longer allowed to like uh, admit to an LTAC from a sniff. So they are hospital-to-hospital admissions. So if I hear LTAC in my brain, I need to be thinking high level of medical care needed. Very high. Very complex patient, very high level of needs. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, A lot of – like when I tell other therapists in the area where I work, they're like, oh, that's like pre-hospice. And sometimes it is. Like we do have a lot of patients who are – like very ill they've probably had the palliative talk and the family or the patient has refused they're just not ready for it and so this is kind of a place where they yeah where it's like okay we'll give it you know three more weeks of vent weaning and if it doesn't work then we'll really consider hospice ah so and then there's lots of terrible wounds like after surgeries very complex surgeries or um IV antibiotics or other specialty drugs that can't be given like at a mm. sniff level. Mm-hmm. So this kind of hospital was created for those patients. So wow. Like I have such little interaction with <laughs> LTACs. Like this is all so new to me. I'm yeah. loving it. Thank you, yeah. Jen. Yeah. Yeah. So I so I job shared with my um old clinical supervisor and just like jumped in the deep end. I had no idea what I was doing or not doing correctly. I just remember leaving every day being like, oh my God, I hope (laughs) I did that right. And 
it was it was such a small hospital and it was new, so no one really <laughs> noticed probably. <laughs> and then I will say, um, the respiratory therapist that I worked with was just an amazing teacher. Like he took the time to teach me everything about the ventilator. I probably remember 25% of it, but he did. He went through every single part of the ventilator. He taught me how to tracheal suction, and he was he was very encouraging. He was like, you can do this. You're going to do this. I'm going to teach you how to do it, and then don't call me in here to, <laughs> okay. to suction them. When we get an order for a speaking valve, that's your order. And so it was very much like he want, he was not territorial. He wanted me to be a part of that's great the weaning process that's amazing that's so cool yeah I love it that he had those skills to to train you because that was kind of my question you said you were job sharing so like you worked x amount of days a week Uh and your clinical prior clinical supervisor Uh worked the other days of the week that's right um so was she experienced in this area then I mean, I think she had... Did you use her for a mentor? Yeah. And she would... I would text her, and she was very, like, non-judgmental. You know how sometimes you work with other SLPs, and they're, you know, they like to show how much they know. She was not like that. She was very encouraging, and she, you know, picked up my texts or calls whenever I had questions. But we did work opposite schedules, so a lot of times it was just, like, me trying to figure things out on my own. So you were the only one there when you were there. That's right. Yeah. Wow. I'm so glad you had that RT. I'm a little jelly. I like. I, I want to meet our RTs and I know. get to know them better. I don't even know the name of our pulmonologist, which that was the other Dr. thing. <laughs> is he good or bad? He or is, is patients he love him. Okay. Patients love him. He has a great manner with okay. patients. They adore him. He just goes in there. He's a straight shooter. He's fun. He, um, yeah. I get the impression from patients and the other nurses that he's fantastic. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that was the other thing is a lot of the pulmonologists were very like, all right, come in here. Yeah. I mean, they would let me look at chest x-rays. They would let me run questions by them. They were very accessible. That's awesome. That's like something I need to do. I'm working on that. Like I see a doctor in a white lab coat and I'm like, oh, scary authority figure, (laughs) turn and run. Yeah. Yeah. Like they know so much. I'm just this little ant, you know, they're just going to look at me sideways and crush me with the weight of their glare. It's ridiculous. I have issues. I know. I'm working through them. <laughs> it helps me. My brother and my best friend are both physicians, and oh. I lived with them during medical school. And so, I mean, they're just people, yes, you know? I forget that. I guess, you know, I'm scared I'm going to ask them a question, and then they're going to start talking to me, maybe ask me, like, another probing question, and then, like, I'm not going to know the information that they want, or I'm going to present it in a very, like, too casual, non-medical term way, or my favorite is how much I mispronounce medical terminology. Oh, Oh, it's the worst. Or it slips my mind. I'm like, and, um, um, and I just can't remember (laughs) the words. Yes. Oh yeah. my gosh. Okay. So, uh, my, like, okay, I have a quick story. Okay. I had this patient uh-huh. and they were feeling nauseous and I couldn't find any of those little green bags. Yeah. So I went out to the nurse's station and I'm like, Hey, um, could you show me or help me with this? You know, where, where are the emesis bags? Yeah. <laughs> God bless her. She was like, do you mean emesis? And yeah. I was like, obviously. <laughs> yes. That's what I meant. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. That is funny. So that's my story. Back on topic. So you kind of fell into this Mm -hmm. population by accident. Yes. You had a great mentor, and you had access to another SLP who could help guide you. Uh Uh-huh. 
you talked about how, like, you were like, am I even doing this right? Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh, I hope no one finds out. (laughs) Like, besides your two mentors, like, Mm -hmm. where else did you go to find information on what to do with these patients? Um... I did the dysphagia study group, but even there, um, I felt like the kinds of patients that the therapists were seeing were very different than the ones that I was seeing. Um, Honestly, the biggest hurdle that I had to jump was being a part of the end of life process for patients. Going from like an elementary school (laughs) to a hospital where people are dying, actively dying, Mm -hmm. um, was... um, something that I had a hard time wrapping my mind around and I had a huge transition. Yeah. A lot about that. So you felt like you really needed to focus on kind of your counseling skills. Oh yeah. I even think now, like I look at therapists who are just like entering, um, the workforce and it just, they don't get it. Like that you can tell, like they don't understand that these patients are in the midst of trauma. They're grieving a life that will probably not be lived again, especially yep. in the LTAC setting. And they mm-hmm. walk in and they say something like, oh, I'm sorry, you're NPO for three days. And there's just no <laughs> education. There's no warmth around what they're saying. There's no like, I know this is really hard. Um, there, And it just, it makes me sad um, Yeah, for those patients. And I was, I was that therapist at the beginning. Like, mm-hmm. I think you have to just kind of go through that. Um, there was definitely an on-the-job learning aspect for me. Mm-hmm. But I like to flatter myself and think that I have, like, a smidgen of, like, ingrained empathy and that I can kind of tune into that. Yeah. But still, I've come across patients that are really struggling with what's happened to them and, mm-hmm. and th- how it's changed their life and their position in their life. Yeah. You know, they were once the provider and now they're being taken care of and that change in roles shocked them beyond belief and like I can't relate to that I don't know what that's like right and they know it so I try to be more of that sympathetic ear and Mm -hmm. understanding and being like yeah what you're going through is terrible Mm -hmm. I'm there with you I understand that and now we have some work to do (laughs) yeah (laughs) how do you make that transition yeah awkward do you have you ever been a patient? Have you ever stayed in the hospital? I have not, thankfully. So far, we're some wood. Yeah, knock on that. The have only you? time is when I've had children, mm. and it was really like people just come in your room. Yeah, they just <laughs> breeze in. No, because I know, because I'm one of them. I mean, I do the knock, knock. Hi, I'm so and so. You know, I try to like not just walk in there with a purpose, like, even though I have a purpose to be there, like, I want to kind of make it as if they're inviting me in. Right. I'm really slow about the entrance. Like, I try to wait and hear Uh that they've acknowledged, that that they've heard me, you know, kind of ask for entrance. Yeah. But yeah, it's that, that's their privacy and you're just, yeah, kicking right in. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So tell me about how being a patient changed your experience. Oh, I just, you just have like little personal space and people are just really coming in and out. I remember, you know, after you have a baby, it's like a disaster zone down there. And like going to the bathroom is a whole production. And I was in the bathroom and just this, I think it was an environmental service person just like walked in to change my, my trash can. And I'm in the middle of doing this whole process. I mean, she's like, Oh, hi, excuse me. And then just did it. Like just did this trash can. I remember, oh my gosh, was I like coming, I don't remember how this 
maybe I was like, it was my time to go see a patient for uh-huh. like inpatient rehab therapy because, you know, it's like scheduled time. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I did my little knock, knock on the door and I'm kind of like poking my head in and the doctor is having a conversation with the patient who is sitting on the toilet. <laughs> and then I'm like, I'm gonna come back later. So, I, you know, I kind of hover outside, the doctor leaves and I give it some time and then I go in mm-hmm. and the patient was like not happy about that scenario. Yeah. They were like... What and you know, I think it's a lot like that environmental special service person and that doctor, they're so used to seeing people in those positions, yeah. like it doesn't even phase them uh-huh. anymore. Like they they're they've seen worse. They yeah. they've been in crazier circumstances. And they forget that for that person, that's a new experience totally. for them. <laughs> yeah. So Yeah. Yeah, anytime there's anything very per- like I appreciate in our field that we so very rarely have to move people, you know, be in transfer situations or anything related to needles or blood or bodily fluids. And so whenever any of that occurs, um, if something happens and the patient's like, I need something, I'm like, well, let me get your nurse. Like, mm-hmm. And I ask the nurse if they need help because I don't want to be like one of those people who's like, yeah. ew, gross, right. like, right. that's not my job. Right. But that patient needs probably... One less set of eyes. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, like, I always try to find that balance. But Yeah. <laughs> We've gotten way off topic of Dragon Fit people. Not surprising, because, <laughs> you know, you get two speech people together. I know. The, yeah, the way we... as a story could go. Yeah. Any direction. All right. Well, when did you start feeling comfortable treating the patients at the LTAC? Um, I mean, it didn't take me very long. I really... I mean, that respiratory therapist... Um, Greg Schultz, if you're out there, he was, I mean, I think he's still practiced. He's was just so helpful. He was just, he made me feel really confident in what I was doing. Um, so I would say about a year or two in, I felt pretty good about what I was doing mm-hmm. with that population. I had a good concept of, um, I think when I interviewed for my last job, I said I could walk into any patient room and I could figure out what I needed to do with that patient. And I felt probably that way three years into working at an LTAC because you see it all. You see everything. You Mm -hmm. see everything. So I want to pull that apart piece by piece, but I think we're going to do that through the course of this. So I will will exercise what little patience I have. So talk to me about the difference between a trach patient and a vent patient. Because we, okay. we lump them together all mm-hmm. the time. I know what a trach patient is. Mm-hmm. I don't have much experience with vents, so enlighten me. Okay, so uh, a, vent, a patient who's on a ventilator, that machine is breathing for the patient. So it administers a breath. What? Through the trach. Oh. Will they have a stoma or is... If a vent does a vent mean that they automatically have a stoma and a no, trach? that's right. So they can be, um, they can have an ET tube from the mouth to the trachea, and and the machine could breathe for them that way. Once you're on that for or you're orally um, intubated for about a week, then the pulmonologist wants to trach you because you're clearly not pul- you're not stable pulmonary wise and so you're going to need um we're going to need to access your airway easier um we don't want patients to have oral um intubation for that long because it is kind of in the way of the structures um you can't move your mouth um it's just more invasive so they trach a patient about a week or two depending some families really try to push it off because once you get a hole in the neck it seems like 
it's, you know, a really big deal. <laughs> Something that was real just got realer. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so one, if they're a trach patient on the ventilator, the machine is breathing for them through the trach. So it could be, um, you could set the vent, and I'm going to like run out of my knowledge on vents, but you could set the vent to where it administers the breath at a certain time at a certain pressure. So the person who is on the ventilator is doing nothing to initiate the breath. The machine is doing everything for them. Then you could set the ventilator to where it's the patient initiates the breath, but the vent makes sure that it takes in enough via pressures. So um, the patient will um, initiate the breath. The machine will make sure it gets enough of a breath. And that's like a step down in terms of weaning, like you're getting closer to getting Mm -hmm. off. Mm -hmm. And then the amount of pressure needed, they can turn that down. And once it's to a certain point, they say, okay, we're ready to trial them off the ventilator. They take them off and um, they see how they do for a certain period of time. And then they can just, you know, pop it right back on if they're not doing well. Okay. So. Are there any periods where they're like... um like maybe during the day they're kind of okay, but oh, let's let's put them back on the ventilator at night. Yes, like, is absolutely. That a thing? Yeah, okay. that is definitely a thing. Or even during the day, it's like exercise for them. I mean, they feel winded, they feel short of breath. So you sometimes, and they're anxious. Like when you you have air hunger, you're anxious, and okay. so that makes you want to breathe more. And then the whole cycle. So they will say like, let's do it for an hour, then we'll put you back on, then we'll try it. again for another hour so yes yeah I think what attracts me about this whole process is all the weaning involved like I don't know why that really appeals to me yeah I really like that there's like stages and then we're like let's get you there piece by piece step by step and it's like very definable levels of progress and achievement and like goals right that's yeah that appeals to me yeah yeah and it is like a whole um person approach like physical therapy for a patient who's on a ventilator is so important to get them up to sit them up to help them to breathe better um to get them in a barton chair and what's a barton chair? a barton chair is a chair that lays completely flat and then you can pull the patient over and then you can sit the chair up and it's like a big comfy recliner and then you can kind of tilt in space too so different levels of like Okay. Yeah. So it will lay flat so you can transition them from their bed to the chair mm-hmm. and then sit them up in the chair. Mm-hmm. And then the chair will cr- kind of cradle them back, almost like a recliner, but not but keeping the legs That's like, right. bent. So yes. you're kind of at that 90-degree angle, but now tilted back. Yes. Okay, cool. And, um, okay, so that's kind of like what PT's getting in there and doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are we doing? At this point, it's a lot of education. So I like to introduce myself right away and just say, you know, you're on this machine, so there's not much I can do right now. But as soon as you're off the breathing machine and the pulmonologist says it's okay, then we'll come in and we'll try some manual occlusion trials. So, I mean, you just basically deflate the cuff and then put your finger over the trach. Okay. Um, and see if they can voice, see if there's any pressure release when you take off your finger from the trach. Um, you can kind of get an idea of, like, if they're going to tolerate the speaking valve or not. 
Okay. Um, um, all right. So basically, when a patient's on a vent, we're not doing anything with them. Right. For the newly trached and ventilated patients, yes. But if you have a patient who is a long-standing trach, they, maybe they've been a paraplegic for a long time and they, they require the ventilator to breathe, um, then at that point you can try some inline speaking valve trials where the speaking valve goes in the line of the ventilator and they can voice if you deflate the cuff. Um, the respiratory therapist needs to kind of be in there to play with the pressures because the machine will just alarm and alarm. Um, you can do that. And then you can also start initiating a diet for those patients. Just because you're on a ventilator doesn't necessarily mean you can't eat. It just means that um, we need to be super cautious about how you eat and what you can eat. Um, but I've had so many patients who are long-term trach and vent patients who do eat. Mm -hmm. So we get brought in for um, swallowing for some of those patients initially, even though they're on the ventilator. Um, Do LTECs have, like, a radiology suite or fees? Like, do they do video swallow studies? Like, do they do imaging? Yes. So On site, or do they send out? They, um, the only one here, well, the only two that I know of in town both have radiology suites in on site. Oh, good. Okay. So they do them there. That the LTAG population is the best population for fees. Um, every LTAG should have a fees machine because a lot of times you get patients and for some reason they cannot tolerate the speaking valve and you know, like structurally something is funky. Mm-hmm. And if you could just visualize it, <laughs> see, then we little can, tube in there yes. and take a look around. Because these patients are not going to an ENT anytime soon. I mean, that's so low on the priority list. There aren't ENTs who, like, come in? So when I was at the LTAC that was inside a hospital, hospital within the hospital, ENTs, my experience is they're they, they're prima donna. They do not <laughs> want to do extra. And there's like oh a lot gosh. of weird politics. That's I couldn't hilarious. really figure it out. But like, no, they wouldn't come up. They that would just, not come up. They didn't think that their skills were needed in the population. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the story I got was that ENT felt like our physicians weren't doing a good job with the decannulation process. And so he just refused to come up. Well, that's not very helpful. You need to work with those doctors, not right. just take your ball and go home. Yeah. Oh, that's exact. Yeah, that's exactly what mm. it was like. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, did you have a fees unit in that LTAC? So in that LTAC, the main hospital did. So the speech therapist would come up and do the fees. And we would basically, I would feed them while the other therapist passed the scope. And I would interpret the results. So the only thing I was not doing was passing the scope. Mm-hmm. And it was so frustrating because it was a skill that I felt like if I just, I could get really easily. And we were paying this hospital, you know, countless times to come up and do fees. I mean, all the time. And if they just bid off the cost of the machine. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, we paid for two or three machines just by having these mm-hmm. therapists come up and do the fees again and again. Now, 
Um, would you write up the report too? Uh huh. I would write up the report. They wouldn't even write a report. Oh my gosh. Uh-huh. What were they paying? Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right. Again and again. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, y'all. Jen and I keep going and going and going. So I had to split this podcast into two episodes. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it so far. You know I have. I've been laughing at every turn. Jen is such a good time. So on the second podcast, uh, we get way more in-depth on um, the treatment and the evaluation procedures and who she collaborates working with the trach and vent population. She talks about working with your pulmonologist, coordinating with the dietitians, um, and how amazing she's gotten at reading lips. So be sure that you tune in for episode two with Jen Hurst talking about eval and treatment with the trach and vent population in LTAC setting.